From the studios of Teeing It Up in the Swamps of Jersey, this is Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling for Monday, June 10th, 2019, U.S. Open Week Monday. Ryan Ballinger joins us from the Golf News Net to preview the United States Open Championship from Pebble Beach Golf Links. Ryan, good afternoon. Hey, Jeremy. How are you? Um, we'll, we'll get to Rory in a second. Because we could start this with Rory, but I don't want to start this with Rory. Is the USGA's reputation on the, on the line this week? And I know that's such a talk show thing, and you're probably getting asked that, and you may have a podcast or an article about that, but I just find this topic fascinating, that the organization that governs the rules of golf, that puts on these championships, that has... Uh, it, it appears once players actually sit down and talk to the person and talk to the personnel, they understand why they've done some things. Yet I feel like because of setup issues, their reputation could be on the line this week. I think some of the setup issues have been blown out of proportion by players who frankly don't understand how it's done. Um, and you alluded to that a second ago. If you look at recent memory, right? I mean, let's think about, let's go back to 2013. I think it's a reasonable starting place. Um, Marion, which was a sub-7,000 yard golf course. The USGA set it up to keep it somewhere near par. And they did that with some ludicrous changes to the golf course in terms of growing out rough, making fairways super thin in places, just making it really, really hard uh, to just move forward with the golf ball. And no one complained about that, by the way, even though it was atrocious from an architectural standpoint. If anyone was going to complain, that would have been the week to complain. I think Phil might have retrospective. I, I think Phil yeah, a couple weeks ago back, finally but said But not some, like, yeah. during, cause he, yeah. because if he had won, he couldn't have said anything. Exactly. Um, and then in 2015, you know, Chambers was not exclusively the USGA's fault. It was both the fault of their team and the agronomy team at Chambers Bay for kind of guessing wrong about how the month leading into the championship would work. And unfortunately, with the colossally bad decision to have fescue from tea through green, they paid a price for that. Um, that wasn't a setup issue. That wasn't an agronomy issue. So, I mean, I understand there's a problem. I get it. But the golf course was fine. Then, I think 17, they seemed to get some crap because Brooks Kepka won on 16 under par. Now, that happened on a par 72 golf course, right? So, if you take away eight strokes, because that's normally what they would play at U.S. Open at, 70, then eight under par one. Who cares? Uh, a golf course that was really long and, and completely predicated on wind to have any kind of defense. There was no wind and it rained a lot. So, fairways were wider and there was nothing to stop the ball. And then... Being the Shinnecock, and I think that there is some legitimate room for criticism there. Because, if anything, I, I think I would be critical of the USGA when they let the golf course get into a condition that is radically different than part of the field saw at another part of the day. So when they lost the golf course, for my, in my view, for about two, two and a half hours toward the tail end of the third round, it would be one thing if the golf course had been that devastatingly difficult for everybody that day, but it wasn't because that change in difficulty in the, the afternoon opened the door for Daniel Berger and Tony Finau to jump from what, T45 to the final group. 
And that was because the golf course had changed and they had not prepared properly for the way it was going to dry out in the heat. But then the next day, the course was fine and they got it back up to snuff and it really wasn't that terrible. And I think, I think they went too much the other way. And so I think the only time really in recent memory, in the last half dozen years or so, that they've kind of failed was that Saturday afternoon at Shinnecock. So I think the players make a little bit too much of it. They're used to being coddled by the PGA Tour. Two of the other majors have absolutely pristine setups because the PGA of America wants a country club championship. And uh, the Masters is just the Masters. And so you also accept at the Open, the British Open that is, that it's going to be kind of funky and you're going to get whatever the weather gives you. So it, it just doesn't fit the mindset of the, the players for the other majors. So I think to some extent, long-winded way of saying, yeah, I mean, I guess the reputation is online among the players, but a lot of the players who don't like them aren't going to change anytime soon. And I, I think this week with Pebble, you have a unique case more along the lines of Marion than you do any of the other recent venues because it's barely 7,100, it's not even 7,100 yards. They have to really pinch in the fairways to make it somewhat difficult for a U.S. Open. It's in June, so it's going to be different than the normal February event. These guys typically see it on the PGA Tour. And you've got a new setup man this week in John Bodenhammer. So you've got a lot of people and a lot of changes and a lot of different circumstances to this particular Open. I don't know that that's necessarily the recipe for getting it exactly how the players want it. Um, Personally, I don't think the USGA should care how the players want it. We're talking with Ryan Ballinger here on uh, Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling. Here's my complaint. Um, not complaint. Um, here's where I have an issue. And don't forget 2016, by the way. People didn't like how the USGA handled the whole uh, 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 Dustin Rules fiasco. So, yeah, yeah, that's not a setup issue, but yeah. Right, but that's also... Like, well, some would say it's a setup issue because they had to get the greens so fast. Fair. Yeah. That it led to that that kind of a situation happening, and that if you just and what everybody who has played Oakmont outside of a U.S. Open has said is that they could literally roll up, put in stands, and that golf course is ready to go, and you wouldn't even have to touch it. And that was the complaint from the people who have Oakmont experience, which is Oakmont is set up at times more difficult than a U.S. Open. Is why did you speed it up even more? That made no sense. All right. Let's let's put that aside though, because that, as you said, was a rules issue. My complaint about this week, and I I, I know everybody's looking at that Patrick Cantlay video, and you know that's what's gone viral. I don't know if they know what they want, and that's my problem. Um, there are there are players who want different things. Tiger likes super thick rough, putting a premium on hitting the fairway. You got to chop it out. Mike Davis likes this graduated rough system where if you get really offline, you're in trouble. If you get somewhat offline, you're okay and can advance it. This week, from what I'm seeing in videos and pictures and stuff, it seems like they don't quite know what they want to do. That at times it's super penal and there's no way out if you hit it into it, like, like, to, the, like to the right of nine. There are times where there's no rough, like on 18 left, if you saw Jeff Shackelford's video, where if you do not hit the right tee shot or second shot, up that ball is headed in the ocean if you don't get your lines right. And then there are places where you can play out of the rough and can do something. So 
I'm just confused as to if the USGA even knows what they want out of a course setup, which is highly perplexing to me. But I think that's the problem when you go to a place like Pebble, which is if I was if, if I was in charge of Pebble, I think the firm and fastness that you get in the summer, grow the rough up a bit, but don't pinch the fairways and don't do anything else, I think would be okay. I actually think it would be tougher than people think. But for some reason, they pinch in some areas, don't pinch in other areas, grow it super high in some areas, don't grow it super high in some areas. I'm just not sure they know what they want. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to kind of take a somewhat wait-and-see approach. Uh, I mean, if the rough is deep and thick in certain places, will it look that way on Thursday morning? I don't, I don't know. I mean, they may, they may have yet to make some decisions. I think based on what I've been told, the weather in the area leading into the championship was kind of wet and rainy. And so the, there's plenty of time for the grass to grow. So probably in some spots is that, you know what, we'll just grow it and then decide. And they may just chop it all down or chop it down substantially by the time they get to Thursday morning. So I, I kind of want to take a wait-and-see approach. When I'm That's fair. Yeah, and, 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 and by the way, did you see the video that the USGA put out last night, the Periscope of Walking with Tiger? Uh, a little bit of it, yeah. Yeah, what was fascinating about that, and, and, and for the folks out there, the reason why Ryan and I are talking about this is that this is so crucial. How firm and fast Pebble Beach plays is the difference between February and June. This is the defense the golf course has, or else you will see, what, 12 under par, 15 under par win, I would think. If, if, for example, it rained every day during the event and every day leading up, which it hasn't, and we'll get to what the weather has been in a second, but I think you would agree, Ryan, that if it rained and if this was a wet U.S. Open like Congressional, this golf course has no defense and you're looking at a 12 or 15 under winning score. Is that fair? Uh, closer to that than even, yeah. Right. I mean, okay. you never know, but yeah, yeah. we closer to double digits under par than even right. par. So, well, Tiger played last evening. Um, it was after 8 p.m. Eastern time, but he was out there 4 or 5 o'clock in the evening, Pacific time. And the USGA posted two long videos of him walking 14. And you could hear moisture underneath their feet. This was a <laughs> wet pebble beach that they were walking. And... What Steve uh, uh, DeMeglio from, from Golf Week and uh, USA Today and what others on site yesterday heard from Tiger and from others was that the greens were fast, should get faster. The golf course was soft. They don't believe it'll get that way. If you've looked at the forecast the last couple of days leading into this and then leading up, they had a very wet spring. Then it's been dry, but it's been that marine layer dry. It's that cool, dry, sorry, it's that wet cool, misty San Francisco weather. There's nothing that'll stop play. And right now it's beautiful, sunny there, by the way, if anybody's seen Golf Central um, live from on uh, Golf Channel. So there's nothing that'll stop play this week, but it's that moisture and it's how fast can the USGA get that moisture out of it. And I was stunned, Ryan, at how much noise these guys were making underneath their feet last night. And this was a traveling group of about 12 people between Tiger's Clamp, Media, um, the USGA folks, Joey, Rob, you know, all that stuff. That, I think, is a fascinating element of this because I think you and I both have 2010 in mind, 2000 in mind, firm fastball rolling forever. If this golf course gets wet it brings it and, and can't dry out and it stays moist, 
this brings in a whole different group of people because my thought on who to pick this week are the Brant Snedekers of the world, the guys who drive it straight, ball doesn't roll, uh, sorry, the ball will roll forever, so it makes up for his distance, putts great on Poe, pass winner at Pebble, that pop stroke is great on Poana, played well last week at the RBC. That's who I like this week, and that's why I think this moisture thing is so vital. Well, I was watching the 2000 U.S. Open highlights again for whatever the millionth time um, <laughs> when they showed it last week, and I kept thinking to myself, you know, it really wasn't that firm and that fast in 2000. It was just kind of normal pebble. I mean, it was you know, it's a little bit of bounce, but not a lot. I mean, nothing crazy. Um, certainly not compared to 2010 when everyone complained about 14 and three and you know a bunch of other holes in the golf course. Right. So I think we're thinking more along the lines of like a 2000, where, yeah, the fairways may look kind of tight, but they're wider than they look, which, like Beth Page, kind of wider than they look because the golf course just doesn't firm up very much in four days after a pretty wet season leading into it. So I think because the golf course is 7,100 yards tops, it's not, no one's excluded from winning. As long as you can hit it more than 270 yards off the tee, you can win. It's fine. So I don't think anyone's excluded because of their distance, which that's kind of nice. I don't think Rory or Tiger or Dustin or Brooks necessarily get a huge advantage of being long and straight. I mean, I if you're going to hit drives 350 down the middle, yeah, you get a huge advantage. But I don't think you're going to do that every time. So I think it, it does level the playing field a little bit with it being a little squishy and a little soft. It effectively widens the fairways again, kind of like it did at Best Page. And then I think that just the story is, what are the greens going to do? Will they firm up? Can they firm them up? Because it sounds like the fairways aren't going to roll out a whole lot, which, okay, whatever. But if the greens are firm and fast and you, know, you get to 60 degrees, I mean, it's not going to get that warm. So I don't know that the POA is going to grow that much over the course of an afternoon to get bumpy and get nasty. So maybe it kind of works out a little bit. There's not that big of a difference. I'm, I'm curious about that. But I, I just think it does, I still think it does open the door for guys like Brant Sedeker, Webb Simpson, Kevin Kistner, Ian Poulter, uh, if Francesco Molinari is over the Masters, a guy like him. Uh, you don't, I don't think you need to be exceptionally long to win this week. I mean, you didn't have to be in 2010 either, but I, I really don't think you have to be this week either. It'll be fascinating. And, and the theory I think that Steve was hinting at was... Um, some of that moisture also may be the USGA trying to purposely not lose the fairways and not lose the golf course by getting too firm too fast seven days out. And they can just simply change watering patterns and, you know, where they put the sprinklers, where they hose down and get the fairways firm and fast pretty quickly. So that, I think, also is something to watch out for. Rory wins the Canadian Open. And by the way, that date change plus him going for 59, um, had the ratings up 33%, and it's best uh, Sunday um, uh, tw since 2015. So <laughs> clearly the folks at in, in, uh, Toronto and in Canada and Ontario who have so much to cheer about already with their basketball team, and then with Rory have some ratings, uh, things to thank for him yesterday. Um, that was just, a, that was clinical. I mean, that was mind-bogglingly clinical. And 
you could hear a disappointment after shooting 61. If if the shot on one goes in, that's an eagle. I don't know how that thing missed and lipped out. And then you go into 16, 17, 18, uh, 15, 16, 18, where he starts pushing it on purpose because he needs a new goal to shoot for. He's never shot 59. Um, he, had a sh- he, he had a shot at 59 once at the Bears Club and left it short. Sit on that bunker shot in 18. I'm not going to leave this short. It's the one thing I'm not going to do. You shoot 61. It could have been better. It probably would have been 60, 61-ish if he had played conservative and not worried about 59 down the stretch. Um, I just don't know what to think about him this week because if he drives it that well on that straight, this is where he and Brooks and Dustin separate themselves. But I don't know if you can continue it three time zones away, four time zones away. I don't know if you can five days later pick up from where you left off and just keep going like this. And so often with him, it comes down to his putter. And yeah, those greens were po, which will help, and they were bent. Um, I don't know. I just don't have a feel for this, Ryan. I don't know what to make of Rory's win. I think it confuses more than helps. I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe it confuses us as observers, but... Yes. I think two things come to mind to me thinking about what Rory did. One, it's really hard to follow up a great round with another really great round. And his next round is the first one of the U.S. Open. So he's got to follow up a 61 with something. It's hard to do. It's hard to do. As a golfer, if you ever shot the best round of your life, it's really hard to shoot the best round of your life the next time out there. Because you're thinking about it. You realize, wait. I just had an incredible round. I mean, it's Tyson's PGA Tour low round. I told you, so, but I, I, I hear you totally, but let me stop you right there for just one second. He did follow up 64 with 61, and we always talk about how tough it is to follow up 62s, 3s, 4s with another yep. low round. He did do that, so I would give him that. Sure, but then now we're asking him to do three in a row? Yes. Which I mean, is, that's, yeah. that's, that's a big ask. And so, yeah, he gets to go to a different place, different time zone, think about things. A different championship mindset, certainly. But you're asking a lot of somebody. So I, I think if anything, Rory maybe just tries to hit the reset button on expectations. And look, let's just kind of hang out around 69 or 68 on Thursday at Pebble. If we do that, we're in contention. Things are great. I think you got you got to come at it that way. I don't know how you do that as a golfer mentally, but you got to <laughs> do that. And then I think the other thing is, and I kind of mentioned this before, is that I don't know that inherently he's going to be able to do the same things he did with the same effect as he did at Hamilton versus Pebble Beach. Because the greens aren't going to be firmer, they're going to be faster. Um, They'll probably bounce a little bit more than he saw at at Hamilton Golf and Country Club. So unless he's playing, I mean, literally a, a copy of his golf where he's just banging at 370, taking on every risk, uh, taking advantage of the angles that he only really he and three other or four other guys in the field can really take advantage of. Okay, uh, sure, yeah, that sounds great, but I don't think that's the way he's going to approach the golf course because I don't think you can do that on a lot of holes at Pebble because the rough will be a little bit deeper probably. There's the Pacific Ocean on a bunch of those types of shots to consider. So I think he's going to have to play a little bit more conservatively. That all said, I still think if he's – I mean – Again, if you're driving the ball 350 dead straight where you want it, um, good luck. I mean, there's nobody that's going to stop you. And that he and Kepka and Dustin Johnson 
and to an extent, Justin Thomas, um, I guess you could throw in a Finau or a Rom kind of guys, but they're more in the periphery of the skill set. But if one of those guys kind of do this all week and they just pound the ball straight and long, well, you're the champion. I mean, but it, it, like you did mention, it does boil down, especially with McElroy, to putting. Because he putted remarkably well, in part because he hit so many good iron shots. Those two things have to really work for him. He's a terrible short iron player to the mean, and he's a modest putter because he's a terrible short, short iron hitter. So if he could keep that going, I think that's more important than the driving facet for him. If he feels confident hitting short irons and mid irons into these greens and he you know, hits it pretty well and kind of makes some putts, then he can win. And if not, then he won't. But um, I still think it's a net positive, everything that he showed, because he's been so disappointing in the majors this year. I know he backdoor top 10 one at, at Beth Page, but even still, uh, he's never been a part of the first story of the first two, and I think he needs to dip kind of have that validation that he could still be a part of one. All right, let's roll through some names here. Uh, we start with um, Mr. Mickelson, who won the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am uh, in February and quickly and correctly said, I take absolutely positively nothing from this for, for June, and it'll be a totally different golf course. The one advantage I give to somebody like Phil is at least he knows how the how the greens break. There's been no changes in how the greens break, and I don't think the USGA is going to throw out any hole location that's suddenly any different than what we see in the AT&T. But the, the flip side of that is what normally may be three cups outside the left during Pebble becomes now six or seven cups outside the left when we get to the U.S. Open. And I'm not convinced that Phil's putting is there to be able to let him win. And the Vegas odds that I was given this morning um, by Jimmy Shapiro uh, for Bet Online has Phil at 50 to 1 odds. And I think that's about right for Phil um, at 50 to 1. What's your read on Phil, who there's going to be 10,000 things said about him this week, 10,000 pieces of pressure, or sorry, 10,000 pounds of pressure on him. Um, but in my mind, I just don't think his driving's well enough, and I don't think his putter is consistently hot enough to use that home course advantage on the greens to help his cause. Yeah, I think that's a big piece of it. And frankly, I think he's entered midlife crisis fill kind of stage <laughs> where he's talking about bombs and hitting long drives and keeping up with the, the long and younger guys. Nobody's putting in that cute cut driver this week. <laughs> yeah, sure he is. The, the cute, they both went equally crooked. Yes, and yes. If that's going to be the way he approaches this, is just some desperate attempt to hit the ball far and kind of still feel like he's got something, then we can just write him off on yes. before we get there. But if he can commit to trying to find fairways, taking this seriously, uh, kind of getting over his obvious pre-planned effort to get at the USGA with that hitting a moving putt, then okay, you know, maybe he can be a part of this, but there are just too many flaws in his game, and hitting 50% of fairways off the tee is not going to win you a US Open. It's not going to win you anything. So... I just am concerned that him off the tee is a non-starter, and then, as you mentioned, putting's pretty suspect. So anything can happen. I mean, he is a five-time major winner. Anything can happen. 
but I need to see him in contention after the cut before I start getting excited about the prospect, prospect of him completing the career Grand Slam. We're talking to Ryan Ballinger here on Teeing Up, previewing the U.S. Open. Um, now, I, I have to, by rule, ask this question. Do you make anything out of the ace on Jim Nance's backyard hole? Do you think that'll make any difference to his cause? And I'm just doing this because I have to prepare you for all your radio hits this week where you'll be asked this question invariably. No, I don't. I, uh, no. <laughs> that was great, but no. Somebody is going to get asked that. Someone in the media, and they're going to have to do some kind of like fake in-depth analysis. Well, it is a model of number seven, so maybe he learned how that spins off the right edge. And yeah, okay. No. Yeah. Nope. Nice try. Um, though it was a cool moment, and the fact that he bleeped his own video is hilarious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, great <laughs> I on social media. I lo- don't get me wrong. I love the content around bombs and bleeps and thumbs up and, calves. and the calves. And yeah. It's all lovely, but uh, you're 48 years old. You still got some life left in you. Try to win a golf tournament. Hey, I'm just proud of him for not messing up yet on social media. Yeah, that could still happen. It, 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 it could still happen, but he said at the time he would not. He's going to have somebody look at everything he does. And so far, he is, you know, some may laugh at him for focusing on thumbs upness versus winning golf tournaments, but there's been no, like, you know, I'm so sorry for offending blank group of people. So there's that. <laughs> Brooks, you know, look, uh, Brooks comes back last week after taking all the time off after the PGA, said he didn't care about how he finished at, at the Canadian, blah, blah, blah. In my mind, Ryan, look, he can, he's got to be Tiger-like to win this week. I, I just, I, I, sorry, Tiger 2000, 2001, 99-like. It, it's such a big ask. I know he's 8-1. to one. I know he's the favorite. I know that this golf course theoretically suits him. Um, but I just think it's a huge ask. Yeah, there's only one guy in the history of the U.S. Open that's won three in a row. And that happened 114 years ago. Yes. So um, we're asking a lot of Brooks Kepka if you think he's going to win a third straight U.S. Open and a fifth major <laughs> at this stage. I think that's a lot. But I, I can't write him off entirely. I mean, I wouldn't have thought anybody other than Tiger in my lifetime would have done what he's done the last couple of years. And he's come up with the answers. So yeah. I don't. I don't think that... Playing it, I don't think any golf course ma- I don't, doesn't matter what golf course he's playing. I don't think about he. Excuse me. I don't think he thinks about playing golf courses in a way. And you know, a number of guys do cerebrally. I think he sees the shot, he hits the shot, he doesn't really care what the consequences are, and then he gets to the greens and then he tries to make every putt. I mean, the, he, he kind of plays golf like I play golf, except he's a hundred thousand times better than I am. So it. It's really all it boils down to for him is keeping the ball in play. It's the same. Uh, it's the same playbook as Beth Page, except 450 yards shorter, and it's on the Pacific Ocean. Um, that's it. And the greens are smaller. That's, uh, you know. But I, I again, I don't think he thinks about pressure. I don't think he thinks about history. I don't. And I don't mean that to say that he's like Dustin Johnson doy. I mean he he just doesn't care. And I think that goes a long way with him when you get into these situations where you're talking about being historically great. It doesn't matter. He believes he can do it. And what anyone else has done or not done before him does not matter to him. Um, 
I'm just laughing because I, I wasn't expecting that line about he plays golf the same way I play golf just a hundred thousand times better. <laughs> so you're saying that when you step in, and for example, a couple of weeks ago I had a, I, I had literally like this is like this is my first four rounds of the year. I've got a downhill <laughs> bunker shot off hardback sand <laughs> with a bad stance that's awkward. So I'm I'm. The ball's below my feet, and to stop line, I have no green to work with. Somehow I spun this thing like six feet. But you're saying that you don't panic when you step over that shot the same way Brooks doesn't panic over everything? Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, I mean, it's part of it's self-delusion, right? I mean, you, and part of it is analyzing a shot for what it is. I mean, I know if I'm in a certain situation, the best possible result is different from shot to shot, right? Yeah. I mean, if I yeah. have a downhill bunker shot to a, a pin that's below my feet, um, uh, you know, stopping it two feet away probably is not going to happen. But if I stop it 10 feet away, that's a great shot. So he understands really well what a great shot is, and he understands when to be aggressive and when not to be. Yeah. And so you can balance out what a great shot is versus what a great result is. And that, in my view, is what makes a great golfer, is if you can understand the difference between executing the shot that you want to execute and getting the result you deserve versus getting a great result and maybe getting lucky. And uh, Kepka just understands that incredibly well. Yeah, all right. A couple cookies here before I let you go talking to Ryan Bowengy. Number one, Tiger said that the importance of the mistakes on 14... 15 and 18 at Memorial was that he knew what to work on during this off week. Drove it great, had three bad irons, 14, 15, 18, that, that not cost him a chance to win because I didn't think he was catching Patrick Cantley the way Patrick played that back nine, but that was the difference between whatever he finished, eighth and a fourth, let's say. Are you a believer in Tiger this week? Because right now I think with Tiger it's potluck. And it's how he wakes up feeling in that video with, with Henny from Golf TV. If you have not seen it, the video, folks, that Golf TV posted to a Sunday of Memorial after the round where Tiger talks about the difference in his golf swing when he wakes up stiff versus not stiff and how it allows him to get his left hip back and then to, sorry, right hip back and then to slide into his, or sorry, turn into his left hip on the follow through and the difference that that freedom of being 43 and loose one day versus stiff the next, all that difference makes. Is this potluck with Tiger, or do you buy into the fact that Memorial was a great sign? If he can just fix those three irons, he's he's uh, good to go. I think it's a mix of both, right? I mean, we, we can't put aside the fact that, again, he is 43 and had four back surgeries. You can't put that aside. I don't care if he's the reigning Masters champion or not. I don't care that he's won twice in less than a calendar year. Uh, it still is going to matter, and we're not going to know one way or the other what it's going to be until basically it happens. You know, whether because oh, I was stiff today. Well, that thanks for telling me that after you shot seventy four. Yeah. So you know, it's not going to come up, and he's not going to go. Oh, I feel loose in twenty five. You know, before he shoots sixty six. We just we're not going to know. But I, I do think that there were a lot of encouraging signs for Memorial. He got better strokes gained approach every round. 
um, strokes gained in general, obviously, pretty much every round. And so those are positives. I think that that's kind of the classic tiger of you get better each way, each time you go out, each time you do something with a purpose, and then you get to the major and you do what you're going to do. So I think that's a positive sign. But, again, you know, his record at Pebble is kind of limited since uh, 2010. Uh, really, I mean, obviously since 2000, really limited. Yeah. But, you know, 2010, he, what, finished fourth and had no business being there, uh, given what he had put himself through at the end of 2009. He got himself close to a win at the AT&T Pebble Beach when Phil got him on that Sunday uh, pretty badly, but he got him. So, you know, he's put himself into contention there. He knows the golf course, knows how to play it, knows how to win on it. But I think if the setup, if he feels like the setup is kind of reminiscent of 2000 in some sense, you know, it's somewhat gettable, doesn't have to be perfect golf, but he could play perfect golf, then I, I think that's going to be some good vibes for him. I, I'm, you can't say a 43-year-old guy is going to win, just the same you can't say a guy who's going for something that hasn't been done in 115 years is going to win. But they both have, Brooks and Tiger both have superior talent, and you have to consider them among the top five favorites to win. All right, last thing before we get to picks. That Graham McDowell moment yesterday was awesome. I'm so happy for him. If if anyone out there has ever wanted to do something that would get you further in life or to get you back home or to get you a better chance to advance and you come up short and short and you're not sure you're going to make it and then you're left with very long odds to achieve it and you do it, in his case, a 30-foot par putt that he said was a 1 in 10 to make and was a and was a twelve on the on the difficulty scale. Um, I'm just so happy for Graham McDowell and good for the Open to have him back at Port Rush. Um, that's just a great story. Oh, for sure, it really. And he's played very very well this year. Yep, um, one in one Dominican, which you know it's an opposite field event, but I don't care. You won. Yes, <laughs> you exactly. Field. That's a big deal. And other than that, he's, he's played tremendously well this year. I mean, not the most consistent you've ever seen Graham McDowell. That was 2010, when he had the best year probably anyone could ever have or ask for in their life. But um, he's still playing some really good golf. And I'm not saying he's going to go win the U.S. Open or something like that, but he did win there nine years ago. He does have a lot of confidence in the way he's playing at the moment. Hit the ball pretty good. He's in the open, so he can kind of go for broke a little bit. Uh, maybe he's a, an interesting guy to be uh, on the leaderboard, if not uh, be a part of the story in the end. But, and if he's not, I don't care. I think it's great that he gets to play at Royal Port Rush, that he played his way in. There, you know, there's no special exemption stuff, really, for the open. They don't really do that. Yeah. So he earned his way in. He got it. And the, the way he is going to be received, and really all the Ulster guys, all the Northern Irish guys are going to be received, is going to be super cool. I'm fascinated to see if they do what they did with Monty a couple of years ago when they sent him first out at, uh, what was that, Troon, because of his father's connection there. Um, mm-hmm. If they send him out first to kick off the Open or if they put him in a marquee group, that's going to be fascinating to me because I think there is a disadvantage to being that guy. You know, Monty was past the age of him contending. Graham McDowell's not. Graham McDowell has a shot to win this thing, having played 300 to 500 rounds there. So how they deal with him is going to be fascinating, I think, when it comes to tee times. All right. In my book, um, Xander Shoffley, Tommy Fleetwood, and Brent Snedeker finish 1-2-3, somewhere in that order, and Brent Snedeker wins the U.S. Open at Pebble. Well, I have a lifetime bet with John McGinnis that Brad Snedeker is never going to win a major championship. And we're in like year seven or eight of this bet. 
So I need to root against Brant Snedeker <laughs> this week, and I need to root What's against. What's the? Uh, what do you win if if? Two hundred dollars. No. What? How much? Two hundred dollars. Okay. All right. There, there's some money on this. All right. Yeah. This is this was uh, made uh, a drunk night out in D.C. I believe it was 2012 when Snedeker was on fire. And uh, like he'll never win one in McGinnis. Like I think it can win multiple. I was like, well, let's start with one. And uh, so we've got that bet going. I, I forget what the cutoff date is, but the sweats on Snedeker really this week and 2021 at Tory because obviously he loves Tory Pine. Yeah. So those are really the only two weeks I'm scared of not cashing in on this bet. So I, I'm sorry, but I need to read against your predicted outcome. <laughs> That's fine. What's your predicted outcome besides somebody complaining? I do like a lot of those names. Though. I, do, I do like all three of those guys. I like Webb Simpson. I kind of like Ian Poulter a little bit. Uh, Kevin Kistner comes to mind. Ricky Fowler comes to mind because of his great short game. So I don't think you necessarily have to be a long hitter to win. I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's just again, we talked about Kepka doing trying to do something that hasn't been done but once. We're talking about Tiger trying to do something that seemed impossible. Dustin Johnson's in the middle of a coaching change and seems kind of lost at times, but uh, I mean, second in both majors this year. You've got Rory, who just put on an absolute clinic, but has been disappointing in the majors. You've got, I mean, I just, it's really hard to get a read. Um, I do like Xander, I do like Fleetwood, and I do like Snedeker. Um, my one and done pick is Tiger, but I do, I do think this is Xander Shaw plays to win. If Xander Shoffley wins, I, I, I think it's going to be a great story for the USGA. The same way that, that Justin Thomas was a great story for the PGA of America because of you know his father and his grandfather. Mm-hmm. Xander Shoffley did not come from a country club background, did not come from a rich family, did not come from, you know, how do you do it? He was not one of those people that had it easy growing up, and he worked yeah. his way with his father through the junior ranks of of, uh, of uh, California golf and basically dug it out of the dirt, Lee, you know, uh, Trevino style in a sense. I think that, that that's a great story for the USGA to tell as it keeps trying to grow the game of golf at the grassroots level versus the uh, country club level. Yeah, I would like to see Xander win. I mean, he's come out the gates so well in the major championships. He's practically become a top 10 lock in them, which is kind of freaky for a guy this young. And I think he's going to get at least a couple in his career, barring some kind of horrible injury or something like that. Yeah. So uh, I think it's his to win. I kind of like Patrick Cantlay. Uh, I don't really care for Patrick Cantlay personally, but can't deny the kind of golf that he's been playing. And this golf course seems to set up for his ability to gain strokes off the tee and uh, maybe not be as terrible with the putter at times as he is. So if he, the only downside I think is if he gets into contention, Will people get annoyed with him in person because of how slow he is? And that's the only thing I think that can really stop him is it getting in his head. Uh, it seemed like it didn't at Memorial. It seemed like he had figured it out, like he could work past the mental blocks. But we've seen those in the past, and not too long ago we saw it at the Masters. So, and he was I slow think, still at you know Jack's place. It wasn't. It was better, but it was still slow. And I. I don't think the USGA would be as shy about putting 
Patrick Cantlay on notice and on the clock in the final round if he's taking too long to get this thing done. I agree. We should do a slow play podcast one day because there's a fascinating what uh, what's his face got released. Oh God, who was it? Who got the uh, slow play times released by the European Tour? Eduardo Molinari. Yeah, thank you. That stuff to me is fascinating because that puts people on on blast, and and that I think may be the only way that we solve this problem. But that's a subject for another day. Ryan Ballinger uh, from 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 the Golf News Net and the Golf News Net and and the Nineteenth Hole Podcast. It's not the Golf News Net Podcast. The Nineteenth Hole Podcast. Thank you as always for coming on teeing it up. Thanks, Jeremy. Appreciate it. And thank you all for listening to this edition of Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling.